Foul Perfection Essays and Criticism by Mike Kelly Edited by John C. Welchman 2003 Part 4 Shall We Kill Daddy? JCW Along with other former students of Douglas Hubler, including John Miller and Mitchell Sarop, Kelly was asked to contribute to the catalogue of the two-person exhibition Origin and Destination, Alighiero Iboetti, Douglas Hubler, Edition Marianne Van Loo and Pontigny, at La Societe des Expositions du Palais de Beaux-Arts du Bruxelles in 1997, pages 155-71. The essay was also published in C31 magazine, part of the Striking Distance website, December 1996 to January 1997, http://strikingdistance.com. What follows is a likely modified version of these texts. When we are 40, other younger and stronger men will probably throw us in the wastebasket like useless manuscripts, we want it to happen. They will come against us, our successors, will come from far away, from every quarter, dancing to the winged cadence of their first songs, flexing the hooked claws of predators, sniffing dog-like at the academy doors the strong odor of our decaying minds, which already will have been promised to the literary catacombs. But we won't be there. At last they'll find us, one winter's night, in open country, beneath a sad roof drummed by a monotonous rain. They'll see us crouched beside our trembling airplanes in the act of warming our hands at the poor little blaze that our books of today will give out when they take fire from the flight of our images. They'll storm around us, panting with scorn and anguish, and all of them, exasperated by our proud daring, will hurtle to kill us, driven by hatred at the more implacable it is, the more their hearts will be drunk with love and admiration for us. Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, The Founding and Manifesto of Futurism, 19091 As the story goes, a conversation about conceptual art with Hollywood B-movie director-slash-producer Roger Corman Six resulted in Hubler's writing a screenplay, the aforementioned Crocodile Tears. When asked, Doug wasn't very clear about the choice of title, but as the viewer experiences the plethora of complaints emanating from the cast of unsympathetic characters portrayed in the project, the choice is not surprising. The initial script details the daring exploits of performance artist Jason James in a ridiculous and convoluted story that paints James as a comic book superhero artist, who, aided by his sidekick and lover, feminist artist Molly Trainer performs death-defying stunts in order to fund his utopian arts organization, the Vincent Foundation, named after his favorite artist, Vincent Van Gogh. Point seven, the script is filled with allusions to art world preoccupations of the time, spectacle, body art, tech, and computer art, multinational corporate conspiracy theory, anti-art commodity rhetoric, and PC politics. In a side plot, James is hunted by an ex-convict who was jailed as the result of an earlier James conceptual artwork, an allusion to Hubler's own duration piece number 15, 1969, 
in which the artist himself offers a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of bank robber Edmund McIntyre. Point eight. This piece is recontextualized, in turn, by variable piece number 70, 1971, the work in which Hubler states his intention to document photographically the existence of everyone alive and merged into the Crocodile Tears Project as variable piece number 70 in process, global, 1981, Crocodile Tears inserts a Woody Wright. In this work, McIntyre is replaced with current wanted by the FBI criminal William Leslie Arnold, who is recast in the Crocodile Tears narrative as Woody Wright, the killer out to get hero Jason James. This particular work also inaugurates Hubler's return to painting, at least in a quotational manner, in that it contains a painting of Arnold, supposedly done by Jason James, in which he is depicted, as he might look today, aged to make up for the fact that his photo on the wanted poster is 20 years old. This portrait of Arnold slash Wright is painted in the manner of Vincent van Gogh who, as you might remember, is James's favorite artist. At this point Hubler's already complex work becomes even more layered and elusive. As the Crocodile Tears project progresses, he adds to it parallel or tangential elements that seem quite extraneous to the plot at hand. Older works and working methodologies, art historical allusions presented in paintings done in the manner of famous artists, and side narratives about characters only marginally connected, if at all, to the Jason James story, illustrated in a cartoonish manner, all compete for attention. While Hubler's early work was quite reserved visually, he limited himself to diagrams, simple typewritten texts, and photographic snapshots, at this point his work becomes almost psychedelic in its overload of elements. In much of Hubler's early work there had been a tension between surface blandness and infinite meaning. Consider, for example, duration piece number 2, Paris, 1970, which presents the viewer with six snapshots said to illustrate the timeless serenity of a statue seen in the distance behind some cement trucks. The accompanying text informs us of the mechanistic intervals at which the statue was photographed, but it also tells us that the photos have been shuffled so that they are out of chronological sequence. No longer reportage, we are instead presented with time scambled, which produces, I suppose, the statue's timeless serenity. In other examples too numerous to mention, Hubler similarly activates banally presented fields of visual information in textual form. In Crocodile Tears, visual presentation is elevated into hitherto unprecedented equality with the text. You might say that the image itself is for the first time treated as a text instead of as an invisible convention. Let's consider for a moment a work by Mel Bochner, Language is Not Transparent, 1970. I've always found this piece particularly annoying, though at the same time oddly compelling. In some ways, I feel, it's one of conceptualism's most self-conscious works. The piece consists of a sloppy, dripping band of black paint applied to a wall and large enough to contain the phrase, language is not transparent, which is written on it in chalk. At first, the work seems to elicit a tautologically induced so-what from the viewer. 
But after a moment's reflection, the work's very inability to define, assisted by its limited presentational mode, opens up a whole vista of questions. Language is not transparent seems to be full of very particular allusions, its trippy execution refers to abstract expressionism, the Oedipal father of conceptual-slash-minimal art, and its use of offhand lettering rendered in chalk on a black surface suggests some kind of childish educational scenario. These things cannot be looked at simply through the abstract message of the phrase. They inform and color the phrase, problematizing its abstraction. Yet what this piece by Bochner tells us cannot be done is what much early conceptualist art asks us to do. Hubler himself wrote in 1969, I used the camera as a dumb copying device that only serves to document whatever phenomena appears before it through the conditions set by a system. No aesthetic choices are possible, nine in essence, Dark claims that his photographs are transparent, something he thought possible because the photos are purportedly non-aesthetic, which supposedly allows the viewer to look through them directly into the system they exemplify. I could never accept this proposition. It is primarily the problem of transparency introduced here that I believe separates the first generation of conceptual artists from the so-called second generation within which my work is often located. Much of the pleasure I got from early conceptual artworks arose from seeing them as a critique, or parody, of dominant modes of the presentation of knowledge. I think this was accentuated by the fact that, in the late 1960s, conceptual artworks were in a milieu where they coexisted with psychedelic, counterculture graphics. Psychedelic graphics offered a mode of oppositional visual address quite distinct from dominant cultural modes, whereas conceptual art was a pathetic version of them. Conceptual art's primary visual source looks to be the academic textbook, where a poorly printed photograph or diagram, accompanied by a caption, is standard fare. But the fact that this mode of address is culturally omnipresent does not make it invisible, for, as I have already pointed out, there are informational modes distinct from it that, by contrast, always render it visible again, it is only invisible in context. There are two reasons why, at this time, the art world would wish to render the visual tropes of conceptualism invisible. The first was political, artists sought to make works that, in their seemingly invisible state, dematerialized is Lucy Lippert's term, could symbolically escape commodity status. The second was philosophical, to downplay the fetishized material nature of artworks was to play up the mind, or intelligence, of their makers, or conceivers. This is the Duchonian model. Of course, the visual tropes of conceptualism were not invisible, which is obvious now that conceptualism has been codified as an academic and historically recognizable art movement. In response to this crisis of the look of conceptualism, the neoconceptualists of the late 1970s and early 1980s began exploring presentational modes previously taboo in conceptual art, utilizing imagery taken from modernist art history and popular culture. I know from personal experience at CalArts in the mid-1970s how much popular culture was reviled. 
The general consensus of the first-generation conceptualist faculty was that use of such material merely reiterated the values of the dominant culture, and critical usage of it was deemed simply impossible. The widely shared belief that pop art was an apolitical movement had seemingly closed the issue back in 1960s. However, some of the most widely discussed writings by people of my generation tackle the politics of image usage, especially the deployment of mass media imagery, images that understand us, a conversation between David Sell and James Welling, 1980, Tom Lawson's Last Exit, The Painting, 1981, and Richard Prince's Why I Go to the Movies Alone, 1983, 11 are good examples of these kind of texts. In one way or another, all three attempt to reconcile the use of mass media imagery with the political aims of conceptualism. Lawson tries to reintroduce imagistic painting as a viable artistic pursuit, while the other two writings, princes in the form of a narrative novel, evoke a kind of phenomenology of popular image reception, both discuss, for example, the allure of magazine photography. These popular images, the kind of images that understand us, are dead, are opaque. Sal and Welling put it like this, so what are the big themes? Much talk about opacity as a positive value, ambiguity, and the complex notion that there are some images or some uses of images which, rather than offering themselves up for a buffer decoding by the viewer, instead understand us. That is to say that there is a class of images, call it an aesthetic class, that allows us to reveal to ourselves the essential complicity of the twin desires of rebellion and fatalism. To say that a work of art is dense or opaque is not to say that it is not implicative, subversive or poignant. Point 12. Lawson proposes that, due to the very fact that it is an outworn mode, painting is the last exit for the radical artist, he, the artist, makes paintings, but they are dead, inert representations of the impossibility of passion in a culture that has institutionalized self-expression. The paintings look real but they are fake. 13. This experience is a familiar one in relation to conceptual art. Hubler's early work presents itself in such terms, as I have already suggested. The very deadness of its academic facade diverts the viewer elsewhere. Shortly after Lawson's essay was published in Art Forum, Hubler lashed out at the ideas it expressed in the same journal. His counter-essay, Sabotage or Trophy Advance or Retreat, adopts a Marcusian position in relation to the embrace by a new painting of popular style, little wonder that art world marketing strategies are so successful, they simply emulate an all-pervasive ideological impulse which seeks gratification through constant change. Little wonder that the products of art are regarded as consumable, little wonder that the historicizing of conceptual art lined it up in the fashion parade of art as yet another example of avant-garde style. 14. Hubler brands as reactionary and pluralist the use in new painting of already consumed and lifeless images from the past and present. Point 15. Surprisingly, Hubler cites as alternatives to the new painters socially engaged artists such as Suzanne Lacey, Hans Hocker, and Helen and Newton Harrison, preferring them because they focus on matters that lie outside of art. 
surprising, because this is not, of course, the path that Hubler himself takes. In his own work Hubler also reintroduces painting, mimicking the styles of famous art historical figures, he also begins producing works utilizing such popular forms as the Hollywood narrative and the newspaper comic strip. And none of these works are overtly political in the manner of Hawker, for instance. They raise the question, how, exactly, are their strategies different from neoconceptualist work? Needless to say, Hubler's attacks on neoconceptualism did not exactly endear him to the younger generation. On the other hand, his work at this point had more in common with theirs than it did with that of most of his contemporaries. Hubler was an interesting figure in the 1980s art world in that many young artists had a kind of attraction-slash-repulsion response to him. His work certainly had an impact on many of the artists associated with neoconceptualism, both the new painters and photographers, and the commodity and appropriation artists. But I want to point out one important difference between Hubler's practice and neoconceptualism. In most neoconceptualist work, the artist is really present, this is true of their social positions as artists as well, for by the mid-1980s hardly any of the neoconceptualists wrote critically and many of them became increasingly tight-lipped, in the Warholian manner, about their artistic motives. In Hubler's work, by contrast, his own position in relation to the art world becomes more and more overt, even though it is presented through fictional characters. Despite the fact that Cindy Sherman continually photographs herself, you never learn anything about Cindy Sherman, nor do you expect to. The work, especially her famed film Still series, constantly refers back to social archetypes. In Hubler's Crocodile Tears, a great deal can be gleaned about his relationship to the art world, the art market, and art history. Again, his work is fictive, not overtly biographical, but it does allow access to social realities instead of social archetypes. While I'm aware this is a distinction that is seldom clear in art, I guess it would be more proper to say that Hubler's work intimates experience instead of fantasy. The popular images he uses are not completely dead, they still resonate somewhat with life. His work rides a slippery line between the two. In one version of the Crocodile Tears project, done as a weekly comic strip for a Los Angeles newspaper, 16 Hubler presents the tale of a character named Howard, a first-generation expressionist painter. As I recall, the rise of 1980s neo-expressionism prompts Howard to think his career will make a comeback. No way. A reminder of expressionism's less-than-new history, Howard is simply an embarrassment, a threat to neo-expressionism's pose as fresh goods, as current style. I remember hearing young artists describe Hubler's Crocodile Tears project as the complaints of an aging and bitter man. They were frankly embarrassed that the pathetic art world scenarios it depicted were being paraded in public. Hubler's work did not engage the popular dream spectacle to the proper degree. It wasn't removed enough, it wasn't cool. He seemed too present in his fictions. These younger viewers disdained the work precisely because it introduced unsavory topics that young, up-and-coming artists didn't want to think about.
again, the specter of Hubler's age looms large. I, for one, embraced his tactics. Why shouldn't these things be the subjects of his work, they are the realities of his life, and have become the realities of mine now that I have been in the art world for a while. These embarrassing and loaded themes should be the material of art production. And if, as with Cindy Sherman's work, we are supposed to look through the thoroughly recognizable trash of film and television melodrama and find meanings that are not reducible to these appearances, why can't we do the same with Hubler's scramble of dreary art world scenarios? Perhaps the main reason is one I have already mentioned, they are embarrassing, at least to artists. They venture too close to home. In this sense you can even say that Hubler has a remote connection to object art. But I don't want to dwell too much on the socio-political aspects of Doug's work. To do so would only downplay the work's formal ingenuity. The social commentary in Hubler's project, of course, means next to nothing unless it is considered in relation to the complex structures through which it is presented. Doug's work is extremely playful formally, and much of my enjoyment of it, and exasperation with it, arises from that. The work's self-criticality develops from Doug's insane interplays of structure and content, he continually sets off in one direction only to divert or mutate into something else, often unexpected or indecipherable. I referred above to the seeming contradiction between Doug's attack on the pluralism of new painting and his own involvement in what could be understood as pluralist practices, crocodile tears, in particular, is a giant mishmash of styles and references. In one sense, then, Doug's compositional methodologies are akin to David Sall's strategies of leveling. But this is not how I experience them. Despite its complexities, his work still strikes me as dialectical, even though the various positions he plots are sometimes so numerous that it becomes impossible to position yourself in relation to them. Yet I do not experience this as planned futility. Rather, I take it as a challenge to involve myself in complexity. It's up to the viewer to respond to the challenge, or not to. Doug's work is not designed to fail. It is possible to navigate through Hubler's multi-layered constructions. It's just that his is not an easy art. The subject of pluralism is wittily evoked in Crocodile Tears through the inclusion of material relating to the peaceable kingdom. Throughout the project, the narrative is interrupted by various non-illustrative elements, including photos from the continuing variable piece number 70, which, in its stated intention to document everyone alive, is already an impossibly democratic endeavor. Another intrusive element consists of paintings mimicking the works of other artists executed in the manner of Bruegel, Piet Mondrian, Claude Monet, Henri Matisse, etc. Occasionally, these paintings have included within them the phrase the peaceable kingdom, which refers to a vision of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, slash, and the cow and the bear shall feed, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
17 What better parable of harmless? Non-dialectical, coexistence could there be? Although Hubler was not evoking him specifically, it's hard not to think of the 19th-century American painter and Quaker preacher Edward Hicks, 18 who is said to have made over 100 paintings illustrating the vision of the peaceable kingdom. Because members of the Quaker religion separated themselves from general society to reside in their own communities based on pacifist beliefs, the theme of the peaceable kingdom becomes, in Hicks's case, more than a mystical parable. It is a call to social action, the expression of a utopian desire for the construction of a society based on brotherly love. This scattering of works, rendered in myriad styles, labeled the peaceable kingdom, could be read as an illustration of a postmodern pluralism. It could also be understood as a snide comment on the failure of the modernist utopian program which sought a kind of aesthetic version of brotherly love in its various attempts at international style, or a common language of abstract form. I don't think it would be so wrong to read it that way. Hubler's work, however, is never solely ironic. It continues to hold within it a spark of modernist utopianism. He has told me as much. Though it reveals no clear social program, and staunchly refuses to speak clearly, his work is not fatalistic. His very choice to work with narrative, to set up a system that progresses forward, even as it constantly evokes its own past and process of construction, testifies to his belief that art is forward-looking. And now I will attempt the impossible, by stating that the generation gap, a term that makes your skin crawl just saying it, no longer exists. We now live in a paradoxical community of dialectical, brotherly love free from distinctions based solely on chronology. Hooray! That's not to say that we are equals, however. David Askevold, The California Years. M.K. David Askevold asked me to write a brief account of his years in California, especially the period from the late 1970s to the early 1980s. The resulting essay, published in the catalogue for the exhibition David Askevold, Cultural Geographies and Other Works, at the Confederation Center Art Gallery and Museum, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Canada, in 1998, does not, of course, address the entire range and complexity of Askevold's artistic practice, even during these years, which would require a whole book. His work is so elusive and multilayered that it defies easy description, and even though I've been fascinated by what he's achieved, pieces I saw twenty years or more ago continue to intrigue me, I am still mystified by it. The task I attempt here, however, is relatively simple and essentially biographical. I offer a general outline of the artistic milieu we shared, at least as I understand it. I met David Askevold in 1977 while I was a graduate student at the California Institute of the Arts, Valencia, Cal Arts. Point one before I got to Cal Arts, I was unfamiliar with his work, hardly surprising since the school where I had done my undergraduate degree was oblivious to the world of conceptual art, and Askevold is a conceptual artist, though a somewhat unusual one by conventional definitions of that term. 
I had attended one of those frumpy state university programs that never ventured beyond the influence of the New York School of Painting. Askevold, by contrast, had taught from 1968 to 1974 at one of the most vanguard art schools of the period, the Nova Scotia School of Art and Design in Halifax, Canada, too, where he was a teacher famous for applying the strategies of post-minimalist art practice to the classroom. David first came out to California to teach at the University of California, Irvine, in 1976. He taught the following academic year at Cal Arts. When I arrived at Cal Arts, I was suddenly faced with a group of artists and a set of art terminologies that were completely foreign to me. The faculty was composed primarily of conceptual artists, and photography, accompanied by text, was clearly a dominant methodology, photo-slash-text was its abbreviated designation. A number of my teachers made works in this manner at one time or another, John Baldessari, Laurie Anderson, Douglas Hubler, Robert Cumming, and Escavold himself. While this group was quite diverse, and each artist used photo-slash-text strategies in a different way, I perceived all of them them as connected aesthetically, in one way, at least, they all seem to be attempting to free themselves from the reductivism associated with the so-called first generation of conceptual artists. I'm referring here to the well-known group of artists that collected around Seth Siegelob in New York, Lawrence Wiener, Joseph Kosuth, Robert Berry, and the early Douglas Hubler.3 Baldessari's humor, Anderson's foxy storytelling, Cummings' flatfoot absurdity, and Hubler's increasing referential density were at odds with the tautological simplicity of much first-wave conceptualism. Another point of contention between first-generation conceptualists and the Cal Arts group is the question of narrative. In one way or another, all the artists I just mentioned addressed narrative issues in their work. Sometimes their narrative concerns were overt, as in Anderson's streams of anecdotes, or Hubler's Crocodile Tears project, rooted as it is in a film script proposal, for sometimes they were implicit, as in Baldessari's Blasted Allegories series, 1974, five with its seemingly random collection of tinted photographs of television programs paired with words and arranged horizontally like scenes in a storyboard. From among this group, it was Askevold who appealed to me most directly. His work struck me as the strangest, the most dense, and the scariest of the lot. His commitment to narrativity was the most elastic, present enough to allow me access, but sufficiently oblique to leave me disoriented. One of the first of his artworks I encountered, the photo-slash-text piece The Ambit, 9. Clauses and their allocations, 1976, consist of nine four-part color photo panels illustrating a confounding text, the closest I can come to describing it is to suggest that it's done in a kind of psychotic legalese. The text is descriptive, it states rules and sets conditions, but you don't know what of or what for. Consisting of murky depictions of light and shadow, material textures, and glistening watery reflections, the photos are equally opaque. The continuity of language and image usage provides a sort of formal closure, but one sense of the piece attaches, finally, 
more to a mood than to narrative meaning. The combined effect of the image-slash-text pairing is akin to reading an overly complex contract while enveloped in the twilight fog that descends on you after a heavy dose of cough syrup. Oddly enough, I find this extremely pleasurable. Conceptual art could be loosely defined as a movement that attempted to point out an experiment with the presentation of a knowledge by means of pictorial tropes. This often took the form of parodic recreations of the typical page layouts of academic textbooks, bland documentary photographs accompanied by redundant footnotes, absurd charts, graphs, maps, and diagrams. David's work hardly ever addresses this arena of knowledge. Instead, he is drawn to the world of more arcane knowledge, the hard-to-pinpoint logic of rambling, unselfconscious bar conversation, or the free-floating mind caught in some daydream or other zone-out mode. He favors the poetics of pseudoscience, pop psychology, or the occult. Yet the work does not strike me as surrealist. Its rendition in The Streams of Consciousness is too obviously a structured fabrication. It's unnatural, but also somehow too analytical to come off as dandyistic posturing. At times, I think of David's work as offering a kind of structuralist take on Kenneth Anger's psychosexual film Ritual 6, clearly an unlikely, even contradictory, project. Can delirium ever be analyzed, while being experienced? Wouldn't such an effort disrupt the seductive, mysterious qualities of delirium? Well, David seems to have his cake and eat it too. He is a scientist of disorientation. I was given a three-part Escavold crash course in 1977, seeing works in his studio, at an exhibition, shared with Michael Escher and Richard Long, at Leica, Seven and in a compilation of artists' projects and writings called Individuals, Post-Movement Art in America, 8 which has a selection of works David made in the early to mid-1970s. The writings, in particular, were a revelation. I was taken aback by their odd mixture of game-like strategies, fractured, Burroughs-ish nine-word and genre pairings, and weird, ritualistic overtones. Not since reading Lautremont 1-0 had I been so moved by poetry, I don't what else to call it. David's perverse misuse of logic structures, his unusual applications of pulp fiction tropes, and his unembarrassed, romantic imagistic revelings were unlike anything I had come across before. All the positive aspects of mystical rapture were there, the ritual, the opulence, the inebriation, the rich, elusive symbology, yet mysticism's negative aspect, its faith in some transcendent beyond, was utterly absent. This was art, not religion, and its pleasures were material and constructed. As I perceived it, the message was, surrender to spectacle need not be mindless. Our mutual interest in the poetics and structure of occult practices and imagery led to a collaborative work called The Poltergeist. We each researched the literature on this particular phenomenon and produced two separate bodies of work, a series of large-scale photographs exhibited together at the Foundation for Art Resources in 1979. Far, another Los Angeles alternative space, 
which also funded lectures and artist projects, was co-directed at that time by David's then-wife, Christina Ricci. It was one of the first places in Los Angeles to present works, such as Jack Goldstein's films and the performances of Matt Mulliken 11, by the younger generation of neoconceptualists. In addition to the photographic series, there was also an evening presentation of David's new videotape, Bliss DF2, 1977-79, a light-hearted work, for David, in which a text describing how to shrink a human head is demonstrated using avocados as stand-ins, while excerpts from a sex therapy audio cassette drone on simultaneously. I presented a performance work titled The Monitor and the Merrimack, 1979. Several of the photographs from the series make reference to early 20th century spiritualist photography, a tradition both David and I were especially interested in, I believe, because of the light it shed on the photographic assumptions of conceptual art. I found the transparent quality of the photographs used in much conceptualist art quite problematic. As in traditional documentary photography, the viewer was supposed to look straight through the photographs to encounter the information they contained. Spiritualist photography, it seemed to me, problematized this experience of photography because, at least at the time they were produced, these photographs were taken for depictions of actual supernatural occurrences. But the increased familiarity of the common viewer with photographic technologies renders these fabrications laughable and explodes their status as a documentation. This change, the shift from naturalistic reading to the recognition of the photograph as a staged event, challenged the believability of any photograph as a transparent record of a real event. My work with David was not his first collaboration. At the 1977 Leica exhibition, David made an installation in the form of a video bar, where viewers could relax and watch his videotape John Todd and his songs, 1977. Before describing this tape, I must digress to explain to the present-day reader what a video bar is. In the pre-MTV period, the only place one could see art videos, and their bastard cousins, the emerging underground of self-produced rock videos was at alternative spaces or certain hipster discos where video DJs would project them. For a short time, attempts were made to start up video bars, bohemian versions of the sports bar, where one could have a drink and watch videos presented on television monitors behind the bar. The fad never caught on, probably because of the rise of music video shows on regular broadcast TV. David's videotape documented the extemporaneous songs and performances of a student of his in a class he had taught at the University of California at Irvine. The tape also documented John Todd's interaction with fellow students in a crit class. This piece, and another tape from the same year, Very Soon You Will, 1977, were somewhat controversial at the time because of the issues they raised about authorship and the moral obligations of artists when they use other people in their work. Apparently, John Todd was supposed to edit the video footage to produce his own version of the documentary, but as far as I know this never happened. Judging by the student we see in the tape, it seems unlikely that this was ever a real possibility. 
Adopting the manner of a therapist or acid trip guide, the off-screen Escovold in very soon you will leads a woman through a mental exploration of her own death. It was David's role as the instigator of these works that upset people. He set up situations that could, and did, venture into unsettling territory, while he himself was distant, almost not present at all, as if the situations he set up were natural occurrences. Critiques of power relationships were in the air at this time. Conspiracy theories abounded, the media buried secret subliminal messages in advertising, Satanist rock stars inserted backward slogans into their records, cults were growing by leaps and bounds, feminist readings of the hierarchies of university life made both students and teachers hyper-aware of the dangers of fraternization. In this milieu, it was asking for trouble to work with students at all. In fact, in the very same show at Leica that included Escovold's video bar, Michael Escher presented a work for which he hired a number of people, primarily students I believe, simply to hang around the gallery during opening hours. For this they were paid something akin to minimum wage. In the catalogue for the show, several employees wrote statements describing their experience of Escher's artwork and it is obvious that they felt like pawns. This was no happening, no fun, and no collaboration, it was a mirror of the world of wage slavery. The artist could be seen as a kind of cult leader, a mind-fucking specialist. Around this time, Jenny Halzer was making street posters mimicking the syntax of inflammatory rants, survival research laboratories were starting up their machine theater, infused with conspiracy theory, and the new punk movement was reassessing the ultimate feel-bad hippie, Charles Manson, king of the mindfuckers, as a kind of negative role model. Point twelve paranoia was running deep. David's work obviously mirrors these states of affairs. But not overtly. The works are beautiful, they seem to invite viewers to let their minds wander, to interpret as they desire and poison themselves of their own free will. I recall David's classes at Cal Arts as some of my favorites. However, I can't really say that I can remember them specifically at all. The assignments he gave were so open-ended that I never knew exactly what was expected of me or even what the aim of a particular exercise was. This confusion was part of the point of the class, I suppose, to define our activity as it went along, or, rather, to learn to develop an approach that would elude definition. The crit circled on and on. Strategies were proposed, then found to be too simple or obvious. You always had to move on to the next level of complexity. Too confusing. Then back to square one. When we were appropriately dislocated by round after round of mental gymnastics, that's when our conventionalized, slavish addiction to the laws of visuality set up by the superego started to dissipate. At this point there occurred the death of the author. The general fear of being controlled by other people, which I mentioned earlier, is part of the reason, I think, for the rise of the appropriation art movement. You become the thing that you fear or desire out of choice, rather than against your will. 
At around the same time that Sherry Levine and Richard Prince began their practice of rephotographing photographs, so did David. Ten States in the West, 1978-79, is one of his most beautiful photographic series. It consists of ten color photographs that progress in one horizontal line, giving the impression of a wide landscape panorama evocative of the grand sweep of the western plains and their desert vistas. The work is composed from a number of image sources, including actual landscape photographs, sparkling close-ups of indeterminate nature, elaborate fabric patterns, and sections of glossy, color magazine pages. In a manner that's not collage-like at all, each of the elements morphed together very naturally into one spectacular sunset. It has all of the drama and effect of 19th-century landscape painting in the grand style, like Frederick Edwin Church thirteen at his most opulent. Unlike the younger artists, for whom restriction to the original source material seems almost a political imperative, David allows himself free reign to mix image sources of an almost psychedelic variety, a range that Prince, for example, can only note to in his variations of photographic exposure times and focus. Like Askevold, Prince is obviously drawn to the beauty of glossy magazine illustration, yet his desires seem rooted, primarily, in the borrowed imagery itself. With Askevold it is the intensely colored, mirror-like surface of the page itself that appears to be the focus of attraction, how it picks up and distorts in reflection what is in proximity to it, producing double exposure effects. This conclusion is in keeping with Askevold's use of distortion and reflection throughout his career in, for example, the watery distortions of the Muse Extracts photographs, 1974, and his play with mirrors in the photos illustrating the draft for a syncretism, Notes from Lisbon, 1974.14 Such visual extravagance was not the norm in the art of the late 1970s and early 80s. Compared to that of the younger, neoconceptualist photographers then arriving on the art scene, David's work looked positively manic. Perhaps this is why David stopped making photographic pieces around this time, to concentrate instead on video works. While in California, David, Christina, and their son Ben lived in a small house in Venice, just a few blocks from the beachfront Venice boardwalk, with its assortment of gang members, weightlifters, teenage surfer runaways, hippies, old and young, hordes of tourists, and the street performers they attract. Rents in Venice at that time were quite inexpensive and the area was part Borio, part Bohemian enclave. Many artists of the 1960s and early 1970s generation lived there, before the economic upswing of the 80s raised their rents. John Baldessari's studio, just down the way, was the site of many gatherings and parties where artists of various generations mixed. I spent a lot of time at David's place, just hanging out. The photo shoots for the poltergeist were done in his small backyard garage come studio. We also listened to a lot of music, which was another interest we shared. I was fascinated by the sound elements and musical references in David's work, The Homemade Instruments from Visits, 1975-77, Kepler's music of the spheres played by six snakes, 
1971-74, The Rhythmic Nature of His Short Film Knife Throw, 1969, The Simplicity of the Videotape Full, 1970, which documents the sound of aluminum foil being wrapped around a microphone until the frame is filled, his recordings of the pure tones of tuning forks, his drone-like collaborations with various musicians. As in the soundtrack to Jumped Out, 1984-85, his recordings of John Todd's strange songs, and the musicality of his writing itself. It was in response to all this that the Poetics, a band I was then involved with, used a section of his text Searing Gum as song lyrics. Later, David's interest in music led him to make a first-wave rock video with Husker Du, 1985, the bucolic video short January 4th Moon, 1986, in which a violinist serenades animals in a barnyard, the ambient video Two Rotating Candle Chandeliers, 1990, and Honky Tonkin, 1986, which chronicles a novice learning to sing country style, a nod to David's long-standing love of country music. David soon left Los Angeles, spending some time in Minneapolis, going on to Toronto, and then eventually back to Halifax. After he left LA, he worked primarily in video, producing some of his most complex pieces, including the fractured soap opera How Long Have You Known Barbara, 1986-87, his closest attempt at standard narrative form, and the moving 650, 1987-89, a portrait of two men that mixes real and fictive biographical material. Recently, however, David has returned to photography, at least in part, creating a new installation that combines aerial photographs of coastal harbors with video footage of life on the surface. I'm hoping this will prompt a reassessment of his photographic work from the 1970s. Go West JCW First published in the catalog for the exhibition John Miller, Economies Parallels Slash Parallel Economies, at Magazine, Centre National da Contemporaine, Grenoble, June 6 to September 5, 1999, pages 38 to 41. Brown. Just as if Klein's patented blue is so associated with his artistic practice that it is now his signature, one so it is at this cultural moment with John Miller and the color brown. So much so, I would say, that it is difficult for another artist to use his particular shade of the earth tone and not have it seen as a quotation. But the priority accorded this one aspect of Miller's work has radically affected the art world's reception of the rest of his oeuvre. Those of us who have followed John Miller's career over the past 15 or so years know that he is one of those artists who has worked in a multitude of manners. He has painted scenes of everyday life that bring to mind the works of the social realist artists of the American 1930s and he has made other paintings, in the same very direct manner, of such stereotypical or stock images as butterflies, fairies, and devils, images that look almost as if they were clipped directly from children's storybooks. He has made simple pencil drawings of real estate, uninflected renderings of the interiors and exteriors of a wide variety of abodes. Then there are photographs, taken during the middle of the day when the sun is positioned directly overhead, 
casting its unflattering light on a seemingly endless variety of human activities and locales. He has worked with found objects, covered in gold leaf, grouped together in assemblages, and sometimes slathered with, or buried in, a deep brown impasto. John Miller has done all this and more, but the mental image that always recurs is brown. Consensus holds that Kleinian blue is the ascendant color of the heavens, and so it follows that John Miller brown is the lowly color of the base. At best, his brown is dirt, but more often it is shit. I have never heard anyone describe John's usage of brown paint as evocative of the earth without negative connotations, despite the fact that he has made landscape-like sculptures where the color choice seems only natural. In fact, he has used brown pigment in myriad ways, natural and unnatural, but it is the abject association of the color that has stuck with him. Even when no brown is present, abjection tints the rest of his work by default. His photographs of quotidian street scenes take on a melancholy or existential air. Groupings of brightly colored objects become happy only ironically. All meaning is reduced to the level playing field of the shitty where every action can only be the negative reaction to something more elevated. His practice is thus construed as nihilistic. One aspect of John's work that runs counter to this generally negative reading is his occasional evocation of the American landscape tradition. Such references are most readily apparent in his paintings of the landscape of the American Southwest. These works, obviously copied from photographs, recall such influences as the garish photography of Arizona Highways magazine, two scenic calendar prints, and postcards. Certainly the paintings can be seen as ironic, as kitschy debasements of the grandiose American landscape paintings of the 19th century. Yet I would claim that John's paintings retain some measure of the ambiguous aesthetic of romantic landscape painting itself. Their ambiguity resides, however, in how they mean critically rather than how they are experienced phenomenologically. John's paintings are, perhaps, only sublime in that they propose desublimation. Point three, they imply criticality through an evocation of natural beauty that is too overt, as well as in their insinuation of a revisionist view of American history, specifically that of the colonization of the West. However, the paintings do not follow through on these critical promises in any obvious manner. They may, in fact, be nothing more than skillfully executed paintings of scenic wonders and regional traditions. It is this opacity of intention, this critical ambiguity that produces a vertiginous effect. This is a different kind of sublime experience than that induced by the paintings of Frederick Edwin Church. Looking at his magnificent Cotepaxi, 1862, it is difficult to tell up from down, sky from land, as the painting teeters on the edge of representation point for the viewer is lost in a limitless vista, and nature, postulated as that which cannot be framed, threatens our own sense of boundaries and self-identity. Some of John's artworks do evoke this kind of sublime effect, especially such landscape sculptures as Restless Stillness, 1991, or We Promoted Ourselves Only Slightly, 1992. 
with their strange shifts of interior scale relationships, the ambiguous spatiality of these model-sized landscapes is not dissimilar to churches' uncertain locales. But an even stronger disorienting effect arises from the confusion they provoke in relation to both their positive or negative value and their position in cataclysmic time. Are they landscapes or simply wads of brown muck? Are they representations of that which is preformed, the primordial goose slash the originating chaos, or are they post-apocalyptic landscapes, representing the end of time? But while Miller's landscape sculptures admit certain comparisons to church's sublimity, they do not invite a similar metaphysical interpretation. The depiction of sublime nature in 19th-century romantic painting clearly has religious overtones in its ungraspable boundlessness, nature is an image of God. With every geological discovery America grew older. Geological time, transcending exact chronology, was infinite and thus potentially mythical. Through geology, Chronological time was easily dissolved in a poetic antiquity that fortified the new immense passion for age. From this point of view, the nature of the new world was superior to the culture of the old point five. Barbara Novak underlines here how artists and scientists in 19th-century America collaborated in commingling nationalist tendencies and mystical fervor. The naturalists and painters who scouted the great unknown expanses of the West paved the way for the realization of the doctrine of manifest destiny, the belief that colonization of the entire North American continent was a natural, even preordained, right in the development of the United States. Point six: The deification of the unspoiled West marked the beginning of an attempt to produce a new, uniquely American aesthetic, completely severed from European history. The monumental mountains, redwoods, and rock formations of the West would be God's stand-ins for the lesser, man-made ruins featured in European landscape painting. Our history would not be described in terms of a mundane past, through the images of ruins, but through timeless natural objects and ahistorical principles. The landscape of the West itself would be our art. Yellow, red, grey-green, Purple-black chasms fell swiftly below each other. On the other side, strong-built arose. Towers, whose durable terraces, were hammered from red sandstone, purple granite, and gold. Beyond, a golden wall, aloof, inscrutable. It was hidden, behind layers of white silence. No voice might reach it. It was not of this earth. Point seven. This attempt to escape from the weight of European history returns with even greater vigor at the end of the period of the first American avant-garde. The flowering of modernism in New York City in the 1910s was very much a response to, or at least a mirror of, the European model. Its high point is generally considered to be 1913, the year of the famous Armory Show, the first major exhibition of modernist art held in the United States. Point eight, but by 1917, Mabel Dodge, one of the major figures associated with the New York modernist movement, had moved to Taos, New Mexico. Her relocation was instigated by a vision, while lying in bed one night, the floating image of a male Native American face appeared to her.
Upon arriving in Taos, she met the very man she had seen in her vision, a Tiwa Indian named Antonio Luhan. Luhan satisfied her quest for spiritual integration, and she felt grounded in his tribal community. The hostess of the New Age now looked back on New York as the world that was on a decline and on her earlier self as a zombie wandering empty upon the earth. Nine Taos became an artist's mecca, drawing to it such former metropolitan intellectuals as D. H. Lawrence, John Collier, Carl Gustav Jung, John Marin, and Georgia O'Keeffe, among others. John Collier, a New York community activist and poet, who had been instrumental in bringing Isadora Duncan to New York in 1914, with the intention of having her teach working girls how to dance, became Federal Commissioner for Indian Affairs in 1933. Martin Green writes, The idea gradually came to him that the ethos and genius of the West might be the Earth's doom as well as its hope. The great decade after 1908, which he had known in New York, why had it failed? The answer is that white culture is fatally flawed, and the sensitive individual can renew his or her life only by rerouting himself or herself elsewhere, in the Native American culture of the Southwest 10. This flight from Eurocentric history, the search for an other, indigenous or Native American, history, recurs once more toward the end of World War II, when both European artists, fleeing the war-torn continent and their American counterparts headed westward again in search of renewal. Showcasing works by some of Europe's most renowned modernist masters, the Artists in Exile exhibition was held at the Pierre Matisse Gallery, New York, in 1942. Matter, Yves Tanguy, Marc Chagot, Fernand Leger, Piet Mondrian, André Masson, and Max Ernst, among others, each exhibited one work, completed after their arrival in the United States. Ernst's contribution was a large horizontal landscape painting, Europe After the Rain, 1940-42. Begun in Europe before Ernst's escape, the painting was finished in the States. Despite its surrealist accents, the work is one of Ernst's most naturalistic efforts, its rich details accomplished through his use of the decalcomania process in which random textual effects are produced by pressing paint between two surfaces. Europe after the rain depicts a desolate landscape of mountainous slums and jutting buttes, like the bottom of a vast emptied ocean or post-deluge floodplain. Continuing westward from New York, Ernst ended up living in Sedona, Arizona, in 1946, surrounded by a vista seemingly presaged by Europe after the rain. In addition to its effect on Ernst, the landscape of the Southwest is credited with influencing the paintings of surrealist artists such as Kurt Seligman, Tongi, and Dorothea Tanning. The artworks and mythologies of indigenous Native American culture were important to the surrealist poets Andre Breton and Benjamin Parade, and to the painters of the Dine group, Wolfgang Palin, Lee Mullican, and Gordon Onslow Ford, who for a time lived and worked in Mexico. Point Eleven Ford stated that the countryside, the atmosphere of the Terrascan Indians, their vision of the universe, have me in their spell. It is so different from Paris and from African art and I feel more than ever convinced that something culturally very important, 
far removed from surrealism, is going to happen on this continent 12. In the early 1940s, Ernst made sand paintings, executed flat upon the ground in the manner of the Navajo Indians. Point 13 So did Jackson Pollock, who in 1941 accompanied his union therapist to the large exhibition Indian Art of the United States at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Point 14 The very fact that New York's Museum of Modern Art would stage such a show, in which two Navajo medicine men produce sand paintings on site, seemed to signal the accomplishment of the American dream that had begun. In the 19th century, an indigenous aesthetic had finally displaced the overbearing influence of European culture on American art, and the Indian-inspired paintings of Pollock have come to mark this triumph. They put an end to American surrealism and announced the ascension of the New York School of Painting as the premier form of painting, not only in America, but also worldwide. But there is an irony, for, relative to Native American aesthetics, Pollock is no more indigenously American than Ernst. Moreover, if the Union interpretations that are often applied to the pictographic works of this period, Pollock's paintings are frequently discussed in this manner, are taken seriously, of what importance is an artist's nationality anyway? Surely the primitive signs in such works, linked as they are to a universal collective unconscious, should transcend petty nationalistic concerns, shouldn't they? But what do John Miller's paintings have to do with the union pretensions of abstract realism and abstract expressionism? Well, nothing, except by virtue of their proposition that the American Southwest still holds some interest as a source of inspiration for American artists. They obviously have no investment in Union ahistoricity, for their lineage is quite clear. Following in the footsteps of pop art and photorealism, their debt is to the mass media and not to nature. The viewer feels secure in one fact, that, more than likely, Miller's paintings are almost direct copies of photographs. If they evoke nature, it is the call to nature of the postcard or the travel brochure. If they remind us of the exoticism of surrealism, it is the comical surrealism of a roadrunner cartoon. They depict clichés. It is true that the paintings are lovely. Built up with thin washes of pigment so that the white canvas ground shines through, they yield a sense of interior illumination quite in accord with their sun-drenched subjects. These days, though, it is difficult to utilize such quite particular color schemes and not produce interior decoration, albeit in a manner that is illustrative of the southwest exterior. A certain set of bleached earth tones and sunset pastels have come to be known as the Santa Fe style. When Barbara Novak describes the dry, pink ochre tonalities and horizontal extensions at 15 of Samuel Coleman's 19th-century desertscapes, she could just as easily be describing a Santa Fe-style row of tract housing. This is not lost on John Miller. At display, an exhibition of paintings in Copenhagen in 1997, he exhibited a series of his southwest landscape paintings hung on walls painted a warm sand color. Point 16 The unnaturalism of the juxtaposition of Santa Fe style and Danish architecture was striking. At this moment, 
it is simply not possible to paint the traditional subject matters associated with Southwest genre painting and not have their romanticized nature, and the racism that lies at the root of much of that romanticization, become the subject of the work. After the surrealist exploitation of the American Southwest in the 1940s came the hippie pseudo-Indian appropriations of the 1960s. These have continued in the New Age mysticism associated with the area, and even in the more recent, and more extreme, modern primitive movement with its liftings of various Indian initiation rituals and tattoo styles. Point 17 perhaps calling this exploitation is too harsh, since I believe much of this interest in Indian culture and its environments has been pursued in good faith. Yet, with few exceptions, none of these movements has produced Indian-inspired art that is much more than escapist kitsch. In contrast to the first half of the century, no one would seriously propose today that any of the internationally known artists who happen to make their home in the Southwest at this moment, Bruce Nauman, Susan Rothenberg, John McCracken, the late Donald Judd, among others, somehow expressed the soul of that locale in their work. Indeed, such a suggestion would only sound like a regionalist gesture itself. We reach, then, the problematic sublime of John Miller's Southwest genre paintings, every transcendental quality they evoke is open to question. Again, this is not to say that they are nihilistic, for the questioning they provoke does not strike me as some simple inversion. Despite the manifest problems of contemporary discussions of beauty in art, neoformalism, residual elitism, too much or too little, relativism, and so on, 18 somehow Miller's paintings can be said to be beautiful. The question is whether their beauty lies primarily in their visual or their discursive qualities. They're in the red world of jagged souvenirs signed by the Great Glacier, pioneers named their scenic views to bring them down to size. Cathedral Rock was a ruddy mass imitating for those childlike settlers a cathedral. Courthouse Rock, noble giant reduced in name to a reminder of fiefs and files. Just west of Sedona was Cleopatra's nipple. It isn't known of course who named it so, or why anyone as remote as Cleopatra should occupy the imagination of the American cowboy, for it must have been a cowboy, but it was often thus pointed out to us, just as naturally as the other poverty-stricken titles. Coming back years later and encountering an entirely different population, retirees hoping to live ten minutes longer than they would elsewhere, failed doctors with cloudy pasts, wistful but determined unpublished writers, painters with camera eyes and a penchant for scenery, old adepts at new religions or, in general, people who didn't get along with their relatives back home, coming back then. We found that Cleopatra's nipple no longer existed, its name had been cleaned up by less fevered. Imaginations, that it was now known as Chimney Rock and had never, in anyone's memory, been called anything else. Point nineteen. Here, Dorothea Tanning describes the locale where she lived in the mid-1940s with her partner, Max Ernst. She reveals the shift in mindset from those who came to that place specifically because they had fevered imaginations to those who had a stake in portraying it as a place of healing and calm. Like Tanning herself, 
the cowboy who named Cleopatra's nipple found wonder in this strange place of a kind that could only be erotic. The landscape, as well as the indigenous peoples living there, their art and their religion, were all eroticized in ways that can only befall the truly other. Once that was accomplished, when the other had been completely absorbed into the dominant culture, it could no longer remain erotic. That's where the Southwest is at now as a subject matter, artistically speaking, and that's where John Miller is at too. The ecstasy has waned. Two of John Southwest paintings are named after 1960s psychedelic songs, both, interestingly, by black groups, Psychedelic Shack, 1995, is named after the song by The Temptations, and Time Has Come Today, 1995, after the song by the Chambers Brothers. The first painting depicts a rough field stone building, the other a ruined Spanish-style adobe mission and cemetery. The title of a third painting, depicting an abandoned Pueblo settlement, says it all, the fashionable excess wears thin. Collapsed under the strain of political discourse, the romantic ruin, as a sign, is itself in ruin. We have woken up from our trip and found ourselves drenched in blood. We had a good time, now we are sorry. Being sorry is how we have fun now. Or maybe we are past that, maybe we have fun now by pretending to be sorry, or sorry isn't even an issue. Together we will fly so high, together tell our friends goodbye. Together we will start life new, together this is what we'll do. Go West. 20. Artist slash critic. M.K. This essay was written as the introduction to the second collection of writings by the artist slash critic John Miller. Point one, I decided not to attempt to sum up John's approach to writing or to take on the totality of his critical output, its chronological development, range of styles and venues, etc. Rather, I address John's position as a visual artist who resolved to make critical writing as important an element in his production as his artistic output. The first question, then, is there a difference between an artist-slash-critic and an art critic? I would have to say yes, there is. Jasper Johns made a lead relief in 1969 called The Critic Smiles, depicting a toothbrush, the bristles of which have been replaced with a row of gold teeth. Point two, what does this mean? I don't know, but my assumption has always been that it is a negative statement, an attack on the art critic. Its very status as an ambiguous artwork, offering no clear-cut didactic statement, carries this implication. The antagonistic relationship between the artist and art critic is such a common cliché that it is the stuff of Hollywood comedies. The crux of the joke is that the artist and critic are dependent on each other but have fundamentally different social positions and worldviews. As the story goes, the artist is uneducated but has a kind of innate gift for visual expression, which the educated and socialized critic must decode for the general population. The pathetic symbiotic relationship of this odd couple is endlessly amusing. Of course, while this cliched scenario is ridiculously simplistic, it does contain an element of truth. For the most part, 
there has been a division of labor in the art world between those who produce art and those who comment on it. And, as all of us know, those who possess language have an advantage over those who do not. By virtue of his or her muteness, the artist is infantilized in this equation. There also seems to be a prejudice against those artists who do attempt to speak for themselves. Holding dual occupations is looked down upon. One cannot be a master in two fields, so the artist-slash-critic is portrayed as a dabbler, and if one does happen to be a good writer, then the presumption is that he or she must be a bad artist. Point three. Of course, there is a long tradition of writings by artists. It could almost be considered a literary genre. But these writings are suspect because their authors are both objects and subjects of the critical discourse and must therefore be prejudiced. Artists' writings may be useful insofar as they reveal technical information regarding artistic output, various aesthetic predilections, or even artists' critical intent in relation to their milieu, but because they are not the products of a trained art historian or critic, they do not carry real cultural authority. Because critics work outside of the system, it is supposed that they have the kind of distance necessary for unbiased critical insight. But this is obviously a fallacy, critics are no more outside of the system than artists. Their analyses of contemporary art are colored by their allegiance to previous art historical models or other biases that they share, culturally, with the artist. This complicity, coupled with the intellectual inequality often inferred between artist and critic, led artists to make outright attacks on the field of art history and criticism, not by writing back, but through their visual art itself. Much conceptual art of the 1960s could be seen as a parody of critical language and its forms. But even though much of this work is language-based, its location is still primarily within the realm of visual art. Though obviously indebted to art theory, the wall statements of Lawrence Wiener, for example, could not themselves be construed as a version of it. Point four. Both Miller and I are products of this artist's backlash. We both studied at the California Institute of the Arts in the late 1970s, a period when the art faculty was composed primarily of conceptualists and language was often given priority over image. In the art program at Cal Arts, called a post-studio program, an evolutionary presumption was clearly at work, art-making had advanced beyond the work of the hand to that of the mind. Thus, studios were unnecessary for the contemporary art student, it was often joked, though, that a studio was necessary, but only one big enough to hold a typewriter. Oddly, the irony associated with conceptualist language only seemed to add legitimacy to the notion that art criticism was a more serious endeavor than fine art production. The response to this condition was twofold. On one hand, there was a reaction against the visual reductivism of conceptual art, which explains the emergence of the picture's generation of neoconceptual artists. Point five in this movement there is an increased focus on the visual aspects of art production, a return to pop and mass culture imagery, and a re-examination of such outmoded artistic forms as painting, though now with a critical 
H.6 John and I have both been associated with this tendency. Secondly, the removed and pseudo-philosophical tone of much conceptual art led to a renewed interest in real social and political commentary and the beginnings of the so-called politically correct and identity politics movements. Given this cultural atmosphere, it's easy to understand why artists would try to reconcile visual ambiguity and experiment with more overt historical and critical practices in an attempt to invent a practice where these were not seen as polar modalities. More simply, the main motivation for an artist such as Miller to start writing criticism is that the critical establishment was not addressing his cultural concerns. Dan Graham was an especially important model at this time. His essays discuss topics as diverse as presidential Sunday painting, popular television comedy, suburban architecture, subcultural politics, and rock and roll, claiming them as topics worthy of critical consideration within the bracket of artistic discourse. Point seven. This was very unusual at the time. His approach provoked the question, was it right that art should be viewed as distinct from other kinds of contemporary cultural production, as was the case in standard art historical approaches, or should they all be subject to a similar kind of analysis based on broader cultural concerns? Graham's writings were socio-political in nature and mirrored the concerns of younger artists, like Miller, whose interest in art may have stemmed more from a countercultural base than an interest in art history or theory. Poor A.C. John's essay, Bearing the Underground, is a revisionist attempt to reinsert a huge swathe of lost or ignored material back into American art history. Point eight, while the 1960s new left, and its attendant approaches to visual cultures, was obviously extremely influential on A whole generation of artists, this history is not considered properly a cultural and has been excluded from contemporary art history. Compared to most of John's other essays, this text is unusually simple in tone and broad in its concerns. It is basically a primer on the dominant movements of that era. The reason for the more user-friendly approach is clear, most art world readers would be unfamiliar with the bulk of its references and need a crash course in the alternative history it foregrounds. I know that I am horrified by the oppressive, institutionalized version of art history dominant now, the one that begins with the New York School of Painters and progresses along the standard path of art stars and isms to the present state of museum culture. When I look at current academic revisionist art histories addressing periods familiar to me, I am dismayed by the choice of figures deemed worthy to represent them. Most of the artists that influenced me are absent from these accounts. Historical writing becomes a duty for the artist at this point. The omnipresent influence of Georges Bitterly in recent critical writing by Hal Foster, Rosalind Krauss, and Linda Nochlin, for example, is a case in point point nine when I was in college, Bertley was not even mentioned as a figure in the pantheon of surrealist writers. These days his is virtually the dominant voice. Of course, I am in favor of revision of the history of French surrealism. The version of this history handed down to me as a student in the late 1960s and early 70s was flawed and limited. But the scramble for critical ownership of these lost figures is amazing. 
Much of the current critical interest in the object is a byproduct of investigations instigated primarily by artists, witnessed the rise of the so-called pathetic art movement in the 1980s, which was really just the gallery-oriented packaging of artistic approaches already active for years. Point in many of the critical generalities issuing from this current revision of contemporary art with reference to the object can be traced directly back to Miller's practice. Consider the Roundtable Discussion, a conversation on the inform and the abject, published in the journal October in 1994-11 itself a somewhat belated response to the so-called abject art movement. In this exchange between several of October's best-known critics, Rosalind Crow suggests, as if it were standard reading at the time, that Richard Serra's film Hand Catching Lead, 1968, could be related to objection and anality. In fact, this example is borrowed from a review by Miller, Body as Sight, 1990, 12, in which he performs a critical experiment, related to his own aesthetic practice at the time, analyzing a screening of classic minimalist films by attending to their scatological implications. What disturbs me about Krauss's position is that she doesn't acknowledge Miller, even though this reading of Sarah's film is so odd and so anchored in Miller's practice that it would be next to impossible for her not to know it was specifically his. Her refusal to give the artist a voice seems woeful. It's a perfect example of what I posited earlier as the infantilization of the artist by the critical establishment. Now, more than 30 years after the conceptual art movement began to address the schism, after years of struggle by artists to defeat the dichotomy that separates artist and critic, the same split raises its ugly head again. We are right back where we started. This is why I am so glad that John Miller's writings are finally being published. At last, his distinctive voice is being given some kind of stamp of approval, something that's important now as criticality in the art world has seemingly dropped out of fashion. Critics, it appears, have won the battle, the mute artist now rules. This present condition is considered in two of John's essays, The Weather Is Here, Wish You Were Beautiful, 1990, a discussion of beauty and contemporary aesthetics produced at a moment when beauty was still a somewhat novel concern, and The Therapeutic Institution, Presentness Is Grace, 1998, written nearly a decade later when the new beauty had fully emerged as an art trend. Point 13 This version of the beautiful emerges in a post-post-post-pop art world where the rush of beauty is equated with the recognition of the familiar. No sublime crisis here, just comfort. The art world and entertainment industries have finally merged. For this to occur, the artwork must have no critical pretensions, it must maintain its natural place in the world. It rewards you for compliance. Though it was still a powerful undercurrent in the art world of the late 1990s, I had not intended to get so caught up in the often cliched conflict between artist and critic. I want to conclude by stressing the importance of the artist-slash-critic position and of refusing to buy into the stereotypes that govern it. I believe it is important to maintain that art still has a critical function in our society, no matter how much this notion is tested. 
The problem for the artist-slash-critic now is to escape the present limitations of critical discourse. For the form of criticism itself is an aesthetic consideration. This volume of Miller's writings also contains images of his visual production. The relationship between his various practices has been forced as an issue. I believe this approach complicates the presentation of these writings and makes us, the viewers of this material, more aware of the complexity of John Miller's practice as a whole. This complexity is part of John's criticality.